and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I am your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it is my great pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today, we are going further into the life of Jesus. Yesterday's episode was a long one, but so was the chapter. The chapter was quite meaty. I'm going to see if we can keep this one a bit shorter today. However, I can't make any promises because, hey, these chapters on the life of Jesus, the Savior of the world, are lengthy and they are heavy and they are full of meat. I swear, I was talking to my husband yesterday that I could could probably do 15 episodes on one line. (laughs) that Jesus says. So it's actually quite a feat to try to take an entire chapter of his words and make it into one shorter podcast episode. Yet, I'm up for the challenge. So today we're going into Luke chapter 8. And before we get into that, I just wanted to give a little bit of context here because the first little passage of Luke 8 is going to talk about some of the women that have joined Jesus's sort of ministry posse, you could say, Um, given that the Bible was written by men and women were not looked highly upon in Jewish society. They don't get to be seen as playing a major role in a lot of the text because that was how Arguably, even the disciples in some ways still probably saw them. I mean, Jesus was changing the culture. He was changing the world with how he was treating both men and women, how he was acting as a man, as a minister, as a as a leader. And so, you know, he was transforming things. And it isn't that surprising to me that given that the Bible, as we know it today, was written by men, um, that they may not have mentioned the women as much as they would have mentioned other men. Um, But because these women were so important in the life and ministry of Jesus, they don't go utterly unmentioned. We just, to this day, don't exactly know how important and powerful they were. Um, But this particular chapter... The very beginning of it is going to mention a few women, and it's going to mention Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene is a really important player in the life and story of Jesus. Now, yesterday we read about a woman who came to Jesus while he was dining in the Pharisee's house, and she washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair and poured that expensive perfume on them. And I said that perhaps this is Mary Magdalene, and In my research since that episode, I feel confident to say that it was not. There's so much still, there is so much confusion in the body of Christ at large as to who that woman was and whether or not she became one of the women that was important in Jesus's ministry. And I think throughout my life, there was a lot of people who who have said that she was Mary Magdalene, but it actually leaves that woman unnamed. So we don't know. What we do know is Mary Magdalene, Um, was under some influence by seven demons because it's going to talk about how she was cast, uh, evil spirits were cast out of her. And if you go into Mark chapter 16, I want to believe, it talks about her a little bit again, that seven demons in particular were cast out of her life. So she is someone that Jesus performed ministry on. He, perf- he he freed her from the demonic hold that they had on her. And I think somehow because she was freed from demonic influence, um, people have somehow been able to sort of warp that into, therefore she must have been the woman that he encountered earlier on when he forgave her sins, um, the woman who was crying and whitewashed his feet with her tears. But there is actually no clear agreement in the Bible that that woman is Mary Magdalene. So I just wanted to clarify that, that I alluded to the fact that this woman might be her. On further review and doing some research today, I I feel confident to say that that wasn't her. I don't know who that woman was. I don't know if she stuck with Jesus and stayed in his ministry and in what capacity. I wish we did know more, but unfortunately, the authors of the Bible don't give us too much uh, details on the women 
that were a part of Jesus's ministry. What we also know about Mary Magdalene is that the name Magdalene comes from the word Magdala, which is speaking to a specific type of area in Galilee. Magdala means castle. So there's reason to believe that she was actually quite wealthy or came from a wealthy area, was independently wealthy somehow. Um, And so that kind of perhaps plays a role in her being helpful and influential in the ministry of Jesus. I think you'll find that a lot of the women helped fund Jesus's and his disciples' ability to go and minister because remember a lot of, if not all of these 12 men who joined his ministry left their jobs. (laughs) They left their means of provision and survival. And so who was paying for them to have somewhere to stay as they were traveling around? Who was paying for them to eat? And sometimes maybe they didn't eat, who knows? But there's reason to believe that some women who joined in that came from affluence actually helped provide for these men that were going around doing this great work. So uh, Mary Magdalene will be mentioned in different times throughout the next you know, X number of chapters of Jesus's life and up to the very end because she is the first person who finds that Jesus is no longer dead in the grave and actually the first person to see him after his resurrection. And she is the first person to announce to the disciples his resurrection. So she is a pivotal player. She is someone that God chose to reveal himself to at the moment that makes everything real. His resurrection. The biggest moment of all. And he chose a woman for that. And so she's clearly important to him. I think a lot of the women that go unmentioned are extremely important to Jesus. Played a very, very important role. And so we're going to hear about her today in the very beginning of Luke 8. And I just wanted to put some context, both, both to clarify that No, she was not the woman yesterday that we talked about. Um, But yes, she's an important player in the overall story. So let's dive into Luke chapter 8. Alrighty, so as usual, I am reading out of Luke chapter 8 in the Amplified Bible, starting in verse 1. Soon afterward... And soon afterward is in regards to he has now left the Pharisee's house after the woman had um, blessed him and been forgiven. He's left that house and now he's continuing on. Soon afterward, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve disciples were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from the city of Magdala in Galilee, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means, as was the custom for a rabbi's disciples." When a large crowd was gathering together and people from city after city were coming to him, he spoke to them using a parable. Jesus said, The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the sky ate it up. And some seed fell on shallow soil, the rocks and the rocks. And as soon as it sprouted, it withered away, because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And some fell into good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear and heed my words. Now his disciples began asking him what this parable meant. And he said, To you who have been chosen, it has been granted to know and recognize the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the meaning of the parable is this. The seed is the word of God concerning eternal salvation. Those beside the road are the people who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes the message of God away from their hearts, so that they will not believe in me as the Messiah, and be saved." Those on the rocky soil are the people who, when they hear, receive and welcome the word with joy, but these have no firmly grounded root. 
They believe for a while, and in time of trial and temptation they fall away from me and abandon their faith. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. But as they go on their way, they are suffocated with the anxieties and riches and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. But as for that seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word with a good and noble heart, and hold on to it tightly, and bear fruit with patience. Now no one lights a lamp and then covers it with a container to hide it, or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a lampstand, so that those who come in may see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come out into the open. So be careful how you listen. For whoever has a teachable heart, to him more understanding will be given. And whoever does not have a longing for truth, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came up toward him. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Hey, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to see you. But he answered, My mother and my brothers are these who listen to the word of God and do it. Now on one of those days Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake, to the Sea of Galilee. So they set out. But as they were sailing, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind swept down as if through a wind tunnel on the lake, and they began to be swamped and were in great danger. They came to Jesus and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are about to die. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging violent waves, and they ceased, and it became a calm, perfect peacefulness. Then he came to them. Where is your faith? he said. They were afraid and astonished, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the sea, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is east of Galilee. Now when Jesus stepped out on land, he was met by a man from the city of Gerasa, who was possessed with demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and was living in a house, and was not living in a house, but among the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out with a terrible voice from the depths of his throat, and fell down before him in dread and terror, and shouted loudly, What business do we have in common with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me before the time appointed for judgment. Now he was already commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him violently many times, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered, Legion, because many demons had entered him. They continually begged him not to command them to go into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the mountain. The demons begged Jesus to allow them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and told it in the city and out in the country, and people came out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind, mentally healthy, and they were frightened. Those who had seen it told them how the man who had been demon-possessed had been healed. Then all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, because they were overwhelmed with fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. But the man from whom the demons had gone out kept begging him, pleading to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell about all the great things God has done for you. So the man went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now as Jesus was returning to Galilee, the people welcomed him, for they had all been expecting him. Now a man named Jairus, a synagogue official, came to him, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began begging him to come to his house. For he had only one daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. But as Jesus went, the people were crowding against him, almost crushing him. And a woman who had suffered from a hemorrhage for twelve years and had spent all her money on physicians and could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his outer robe and immediately her bleeding stopped. Jesus said, Who touched me? 
While they were all denying it, Peter and those who were with him said, Master, the people are crowding and pushing against you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, because I was aware that power to heal has gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came up trembling and fell down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, untroubled and undisturbed in your well-being. While he was still speaking, someone from the synagogue's official's house came and said to Jairus, Your daughter is dead. Do not inconvenience the teacher any further. But Jesus, hearing this, answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and trust, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping loudly and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but only sleeping. Then they began laughing scornfully at him and ridiculing him, knowing without any doubt that she was dead. But Jesus took hold of her hand and spoke, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he ordered that she be given something to eat. Her parents were greatly astonished by the miracle, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. All right, so first we see um, Luke giving credit where credit is rightly due to Mary of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna for being, uh, I guess you could say, major donors to the ministry, certainly people that were absolutely as involved as they possibly could, freely out of their own money, supporting the disciples and Jesus in their quest to minister. So I love that he mentions Susanna, Joanna, and Mary Magdalene. Then we get into the parable of the sower, and this is probably one of the most important and profound parables that Jesus teaches. He teaches in many, many parables. Um, Oftentimes back in that day, it was common to tell uh, a great mystery or great truth in the form of a parable. It was something that you may not understand in the moment, but as you begin to chew on that parable, because it sticks with you in the form of a story or a... um, uh, some kind of a visual, it sticks with you and you, as you chew on it and you consider it and you think it through, the truth starts coming to you. Um, and it was often a very effective way to communicate to large people instead of just clearly telling them something that they would just forget that was extremely profound, but they'd just forget it. They could go home with this story, this picture in their head of this man sowing seed, throwing seed out onto soil and understand what the different soils may have meant. But Jesus being Jesus, he had his inner circle, right? He had his disciples who were able to come to him when the crowds left and say, hey, can you explain that to us? And so he does. So he talks about this this sower who sows his seed, which is the word of God. And arguably in in this particular specific case, Jesus would be that sower, right? He's going out and he's spreading the word of God. He's telling people that God is here. The kingdom of God is here and he is displaying the power of God. And he says, some of the seed, the word of God, fell beside the road and it was trampled and the birds came and ate it. Some seed fell on shallow soil and it sprouted up very quickly, but it ultimately didn't have root. And then there was other seed that sprouted among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it out. And some fell into the good soil, grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And so in other uh, translations of this or in other books of the Bible, it talks about how on the good soil, it says that it grew up and bared fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. And so, of course, we see that the disciples come to him and they're like, hey, can you go ahead and just like tell us what that means now so we don't have to spend however long to like really think this through? And Jesus says, yes. I will tell you, it has been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And there's a little sort of addition here, a little side bit that the Amplified Bible adds that clarifies even further what he's saying. He says, to you who have been chosen, it has been granted to know and recognize the mysteries of the kingdom of God. This also adds to that it's been, they've been recognized to know the spiritual truths hidden throughout the ages, but are now but now being revealed through the teachings of Christ. So he says the meaning of the parable is this the seed of the word of God is 
is what the seed is. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are the people who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes the message of God away from their hearts so they will not believe in me and be saved. So that's the first group. The first group of the people where Jesus is coming along, or even in modern day, a pastor, an evangelist, a street preacher, whatever, is preaching the word. They're speaking out the truth of God. And there's a huge percentage, right, of people who hear it. And it just... It does nothing. It doesn't even fall on soil, right? It says it fell on the side of the road. What kind of road? What what soils on the side of the road? It's usually dark or uh, have gravelly, dry. It's not even soil. So it says these people are the ones that have heard, but the devil instantly comes and take the message away from them, and they don't believe in me. So that's a huge percentage of society, right? That just it's just going to fall right in and out of their hearing. Then there's the seed that falls on the rocky soil. And these are people who, when they hear, they receive the word. They actually hear it. They receive it with joy. They're like, yes, this is the best thing I've ever heard. This is salvation. This is freedom. But they have no firmly grounded root. They believe for a while, but in a time of trial and temptation, they fall away from me and abandon their faith. So I think that that can speak a lot to your environment as well, right? So... If you have no root, it could really speak to where we are, where we are in life, who we're surrounded by. What is our environment? What sort of soil are we planted in? Because he's saying that this is rocky soil, rocky soil. So it's not that there isn't nutrients there, but there's all these obstructions in the environment that make it very difficult for you to root down there's probably stuff even in the soil that's sort of depleting it of nutrients or the roots are not able to really get down to a fertile place. And so you have to look at that in your own life of when I received the word of God, where was I planted? Was I planted somewhere where my roots could go down deep? Was I a part of a church? Was I in a Christian family? Did I have Christian support systems, other people who believed the same as me to lean on and learn from? Or, you know, I think that that's, I think that's the saddest one of all of these in the parable is the person who believes and they receive, but they're in an environment where their ability to root down deep, to really get into the word and dis- and create a discipline of prayer and hunger, they just don't have it. And they end up losing the faith because invariably difficulties, trials and tempt- temptations, he says, will come. And when they come, they don't have this spiritual rootedness that can sort of hold them together when life is coming and just wailing on them. And these are the types of people that are going to easily turn on God and say, where are you, God? You're not really a God, are you? You're not helping me. Like they don't have that rootedness, that history of faith. And then he says, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard But as they go on their way, they are suffocated with the anxieties and riches and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. So another way to say it is the thorns are like a form of distraction. It's not so much that you're in a bad environment or you're in a place where it's like blocking you. You're in a family who just absolutely doesn't believe God. You're not you're not in that kind of a situation where everyone around you is kind of like not in any way going to support your growth. You actually potentially have what you need in the soil you're in to be able to flourish, but you're someone who gets suffocated with the anxieties and riches and pleasures of this life. There's almost so much distraction available to you, so many opportunities, so much to see, so much to do, maybe maybe even literal wealth that keeps you from feeling any real need for this gospel that you've been given. These people, he says, bring no fruit to maturity. They have some form of godliness, some form of belief, but they're so distracted all the time that they don't do anything with their belief. They don't root down into maturity. They don't create disciples. They don't make the world a better place in the kingdom, right? They're just kind of like Christians in name alone. They're, they're Jesus followers in name alone. There's not any real substance there. He says, but as for the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word with a good and noble heart. They hold on to it tightly and they bear fruit with patience. And as we've seen in other other books in the Gospels, it says they will bear fruit some 30, some 60, 
and some a hundredfold. So I think even on the good soil, those who root down deep, they root down deep, they create this, this discipline within themselves. They hold on to it. They don't, they're not yielded to all the distractions the world is offering. They're not in an environment that is constantly discouraging their faith. They actually have everything going for them. But even people in that soil will root down and create 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And I've heard so many interpretations of the, the fruit that you create in the good soil. Some think that 30, 60, and 100 represents how much fruit you create in your life, how much change, how much impact you have, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. I've also heard that interpreted that those in the good soil who hold to the Word of God that as they mature in God, their fruit gets bigger or their sanctification gets holier. Their, their, um, their spiritual journey becomes complete from 30, 60 to 100, right? 100 would represent completion, full sanctification, let's see, com- complete sinlessness. I think, it, I think it can happen. I think it be, can be done. But there's a lot of different interpretations of this idea of of the fruitfulness of someone's life being 30, 60, 100. I like the idea in my heart of it speaking to your gradual growth. You produce fruit 30, produce fruit 60, you produce fruit 100. You produce the maximum amount of fruit your life could ever produce, spiritually speaking. And fruit doesn't mean wealth or amount of disciples you have, things like it's more internal. It's internal transformation. And out of an internal transformation in you comes external transformation in the world, right? So that is the parable of the sower. He's just saying point blank, this is the reality. When the word goes out, when the word of God is preached, these four categories take place. Some people are just going to care nothing at all. It doesn't affect them in any way, shape, or form. Some people receive it with joy, but they are just not in an environment or in a state in their life where they are going to put down deep roots in it and they're going to easily turn back on their faith. And then there's ones who are in a good environment. They could root down deep, but they ultimately really don't mature. They don't grow in any significant way because there's just too many distractions and too many reasons not to take this God thing seriously. And then you have those who are the last group. So the the last quarter of a pie (laughs) that actually believe, actually receive, and actually bear down with patient uh, commitment to seeing God bring fruit in their life through their love for him and his love for them. So such a fascinating, absolutely fascinating parable. Where do you, listener, where do you fall? Where do you find yourself on the parable of the sower? Which group, which quarter of the pie would you say that you are? I think the beautiful thing is, though, regardless of where you ended in that pie, at least until Jesus comes back, at least until the door is still open, hey, If you fell on the stony soil, you can still find your way to the good soil. If you are in the space of distractedness, you're you're growing among the thorns, you can still find your way to to becoming good soil. It is not closed to you. All right, now in verse 16, he goes down to the parable of the lamp. He says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so that everyone can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come out into the open. Now, that is a prophetic declaration. And that is something that I have lived my life by since I read that at 19 years old, and I'm 34 now. Man, oh man, that's an important um, verse. (laughs) Because anything done in secret, anything in secret, will be put out and open, out in the open. So, hey, (laughs) everyone else in this earth who tries to live in secret, who tries to keep their secrets and do things behind closed doors that are, what do we do behind closed doors? Nothing good (laughs) often, right? In In the sense of what he's alluding to here, which is secret sin, evil desires, all these things that you think you can hide from the world. He says it will be put out. It will be made known. So just don't do it. <laughs> like, like that's how I read it when I was young. I was like, well, I'm not going to do anything in secret then because it's always going to get aired out. Better not. It's pretty clear. And then he says, so be careful how you listen. 
For whoever has a teachable heart, to him more understanding will be given. And whoever does not have a longing for truth, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. Woof. Be careful how you listen. Whoever has a teachable heart, to him more understanding will be given. But whoever does not have a longing for truth, whoever does not have a teachable heart, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. God, let us be teachable, eh? Let us never think we're too good or we've heard it all or we know it all. Mm. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came up towards him and the disciples came and said, hey, your mom and brothers are here. And he says, my mother and brothers are those who listen to the word of God and do it. (laughs) I mean, he's not disowning his family, but at the same time, he's creating this reality that I'm here for something more. I'm not just my mother's son. I am the son of God. (laughs) You know, it's just like, hey, my family, anyone that I'm going to consider family, he was using that as a teaching tool. That my family are those who listen to the word of God. They are my brothers. They are my mothers. These are my family. My family are the people of God. He's trying to break that bond that we have that's, that roots down so deep with blood family. That blood family is the only family. He's saying, no, 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 there's a new family. And it's called the family of God. Those who believe in the word of God and live from that space. That's your family. That's my family. He's speaking for himself. That's my family. If it's his family, it's mine, eh? mine he's trying to create a whole new system then they go out onto the sea of galilee a terrible storm comes they're going to be drowned their their boat is taking on water and they come and wake him up because he's just sleeping in the middle of the storm good old jesus over here absolutely fearless unmovable (laughs) sleeping in the midst of the storm while they think their life is about to be over Still, despite everything he's been saying to them up until this part, they still haven't quite figured out (laughs) that he's God and uh, he's probably not going to let them die on this lake right now. And that's why when Jesus is woken, he says to them, first of all, where is your faith? (laughs) Where is your faith? Has any of what's been going on that you've been privy to watching through me that you've gotten to be a part of yourself? Has any of that sunk in just yet? (laughs) You know, they were afraid and astonished and they said, who is this? who commands even the winds and the sea, and they obey him. Um, it's the Son of God, (laughs) the same person that he said he's been this whole time. Oh, you gotta love the disciples. I mean, you can't blame them, really. Like, on the, on the one hand, we see this, you know, hindsight is 20-20. We're looking at them like, you silly, crazy guys. Like, it's Jesus. He's been raising the dead. What do you mean? But I mean, put myself on a boat that's taken on water, and I reckon I'm gonna drown, and in the midst of a terrible... storm and Jesus is asleep in like I don't know I mean I can't say I wouldn't have been really really scared but I think like for them to be like he even commands the winds and the sea and like they're still shocked by that I'm like wouldn't your shock have worn off a little bit with like the first person he raised from the dead seems like that's more of a miracle than um getting a storm to leave you alone like but I think this story more than anything is trying to reinforce like just how God's power in Jesus was was limitless. It, it wasn't confined to any one particular type of miracle. And then the final story here, we have the demoniac, right? Well, it's not the final story. Shoo, these episodes are going to be long, guys. I'm sorry. Let me uh, actually take a pause real quick, and we'll, we'll finish up with the demoniac and uh, the, the woman with the issue of blood. All right, so now we get to the second to the last primary story in Luke chapter 8. And this is a very important story. The exorcism, essentially, of a legion of demons out of this man's body. Now, if you go and read this same story in Matthew chapter 8, it says that there were two men. So there is a discrepancy here on whether it was two men or one man. Luke tells the story that it was one man. But I think the point being is much bigger than whether it was one or two men. Uh, the case is you're, Jesus is being confronted with someone who is absolutely full of demons. Full of demons beyond any comprehension we could have of how many he had. 
which would mean he was probably, he or they were probably involved in some really bad stuff in their life. What we also find is he was in a the country of the Gerasenes. So this was a Gentile area. This is Jesus leaving the Jewish people and going into an area where there are Gentiles. And we know this from geography, but we also know this because there are pigs and the Jews would have never eaten pigs. Pigs were pig or pork meat was considered unclean. It went against the old Levitical law. So these people who are farming pigs would not be Jews. So that's just an important sort of context clue for where Jesus is. And it's a huge statement that Jesus is actually stepping out and beginning some ministry to Gentiles, which obviously his disciples after his death would continue. But this is Jesus doing that. So he comes across this man or perhaps two men who are absolutely covered in demons and they live in the tombs. They live in graveyards with the dead. They have obviously been thrust here by the culture, by the people of the day. They don't know what else to do with them. So they're going to keep these men locked up to the best of their ability in some really haunted place. Um, it says, for a long time, he wore no clothes and was not living in a house, but among the tombs. And this man was so strong that he couldn't be kept in chains. It says he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And so obviously he must have been wreaking havoc on this town in varying degrees. He or they had been wreaking havoc on this town and obviously consistently brought back. They would get free because the demons were so intensely in him with the goal to both torment him and torment everyone else they possibly could that... Um, they would overpower him and he would be probably a consistent nuisance. But this is what's very interesting. Jesus, when he approaches this man, the demons cry out through him. Okay, the demons cry out. It says with a terrible voice from the depths of his throat. So I bet it was not a human sounding voice. It was probably very, very scary to hear. And they fell down before him in dread and terror. So if this is two men, they are falling down in front of Jesus and shouting through these men, what business do you have in common with each other? What business do we have in common with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? Here's a huge important thing to take away from that. The demons know who Jesus is. (laughs) The demons know who Jesus is. They know that he is the son of the most high God. They are saying it. No one had to tell them. They weren't preached the gospel to. They are spiritually aware of who they're dealing with. They say, I beg you, do not torment me before the appointed time of judgment. This is another huge thing. They're telling us, the hearer, they were telling the disciples that they understand there's a time coming where Jesus is going to annihilate all of them. They will be no more. They know They know that. They know that they have a certain amount of time that they are allowed to be on this planet doing whatever the heck they do. But there will be a time where they can no longer do that. So they're basically saying, we don't have anything in common, Jesus. I don't know why you're here. Please don't torment me now. I know my time is coming, but please can you not right now? I'm very happy doing what it is I'm doing, tormenting this this neighborhood and this community, this city and these men. But it says Jesus was already commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Like he wasn't even listening. He wasn't even giving them time to make their case. For it had seized the man violently many, many times and was so incredibly strong that Jesus was ready to be done with this demon right now. We're not even going to have a little diatribe. We're not going to have a dialogue. We're not going to have a back and forth here. Except Jesus did say, what is your name? Not speaking to the man, speaking to the demons. What is your name? And they answered legion, because many demons had entered him. They kept begging him not to command them to go into the abyss, because they knew that when Jesus cast them out, they are gone. They are gone into the abyss, whatever that is, but it is clearly not a place where they can wreak any further havoc. And they're begging him not to do this. And it says there's a large herd of pigs that was feeding on the mountain. And the demons begged Jesus to allow them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. Notice this. He didn't cast them into the pigs. He didn't choose the pigs. They asked. 
it was important for them to find a place of habitation. They had to go from one soul, one being, to another being, human or animal. It had to, they had to move into something else because if they didn't, they couldn't just exist in the ether. They would be then cast into the abyss. So they said, can we go into the pigs? Now, understanding what we understand about Jewish tradition, they would have had very little value for pigs. They didn't eat them. They considered them dirty, unclean animals. So perhaps that was exactly why the demons asked Jesus if they could go into the pigs. I don't think it's because Jesus had no love for the pigs. But I think they chose that in particular because if there was any animal they could think of that he might be okay with, perhaps it would be these pigs over here. Jesus gave them permission because he what? He knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly what those pigs are going to do. The demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. So there's two ways we can look at that. Either the demons rushed the pigs off the cliff because they were so hell-bent on death and destruction, or they didn't know that their entering these pigs would terrify them to such a degree that they would flee and literally kill themselves over having these demons inside of them. They felt the torment that came with these evil presences. They didn't want it inside of them. And they all ran to kill themselves. Because if you notice, if the demons wanted to be utterly destroyed, wouldn't they have just killed the men? the man or the men that they were inhabiting? No, they kept him alive because he could do more damage alive and because he was a host they could remain inside of. If he kills himself or he gets killed, then they have no habitation. So I don't think they anticipated that they would go into this herd of sheep, or excuse me, this herd of pigs, and then the pigs would kill themselves because by doing that, they just lost their habitation and at that point potentially went into the very abyss that they were hoping Jesus wasn't going to send them into, but that's exactly what happened to them. And I believe Jesus gave them permission to do that because he knew that that was going to be their fate no matter what. Then it says the herdsmen who were looking after these pigs saw what had happened. They ran away and told it to the city and into the, out into the country. Then all the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man with whom the demons had gone out sitting at his feet, fully clothed and in his right mind. And they were frightened. Interesting take. Interesting take that they weren't relieved, that they weren't happy. Those who had seen it told them how the man who had been demon-possessed had been healed. Then all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave because they were so overwhelmed with fear. And so Jesus did leave. Why do you think that is? Why do you think these people would have been full of fear instead of gratitude and relief? I think it's because those demons choosing to jump out of that man because Jesus was not going to let them stay. His goal was to free that man. There was something about that man or those two men that deeply moved Jesus. He wanted them free. These demons were not going to stay in this man in his presence. But I think the reason why the pigs are so important is because there's sort of a message there. I was reading this in a commentary um, by John Piper, this particular story. I think the reason why those pigs were key were because it sent a message to these Gentiles who perhaps had a lot of money. Maybe it was, this was a wealthy community. But Jesus was coming there to preach the gospel, right, ultimately, until they said for him to leave, in which case he's not going to do, he's not going to go against their will, so he left. But I think what he was going to ultimately teach them was it's me or it's money. And when that herd of pigs, which represented wealth, it represented money, it was somebody's money, all those pigs were drowned. And we don't know how many they were. It could have been a very large amount of pigs for the, for the quantity of demons that were in this man. Somebody or a group of people lost a lot of money when those pigs died. And so I think what those people were seeing was that this man is going to bring destruction on our financial resources. If this is anything to say of it, perhaps they knew of a lot more demon-possessed people and their, their thoughts are just going to straight up, what else are we going to lose? We would rather that man have probably stayed demonically possessed and us stay just as wealthy as before, but we're too full of fear of what else we might lose if this man stays here. So we need you to leave. 
And I think it was that simple for them. I think it was that simple for them. Instead of being grateful that peace was now going to come back into their town, they no longer were tormented by the scary man or men. No, it was still more about we would rather those people stay in torment so that our the rest of our lives is left untouched. And I think that's exactly why Jesus allowed that to happen, because it was teaching them something. It was an important sort of question that they were going to have to ask themselves. I'm sure the word of Jesus and the, the, the legend of this man had gotten to them. And when they met him, but saw it might cost us something to hear this man. They decided, nah, better not, better not. So, of course, the demoniac man, I love that term, the demoniac. I don't love that term. It's just a funny term. You only hear it in the Bible. The demon-possessed man who is now free is begging Jesus not to go. Jesus goes, but he says, return home and tell all the great things God has done for you. Because Jesus is smart, right? He knows (laughs) that whether I'm here or not, the miracle of what has happened to your life is going to speak. It's going to speak. And the gospel is going to get preached just by your freedom. So go and tell everyone. Do what I can't do, in a sense, by being asked to to leave. Then when Jesus goes back to Galilee, people are very happy he's back. And a synagogue official named Jairus comes to him. He says, my daughter is dying. She's my only daughter. Please, please, please come and heal her. And as Jesus is heading towards there, the people are crowding around him to the point of crushing him. I mean, everybody wants a piece, you know? And then this woman who has been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. So what, what I've understood about this as, as I've read different commentaries is this woman was bleeding. It's almost like a period that never ends. And she had been bleeding nonstop for 12 years. And in, in the law of the time, in Jewish tradition, women during their period were considered unclean. So if you, when you bleed for five to seven days during your period, a normal period as a woman, you are literally sort of cast away from family and friends and you're meant to be left alone um it is an unclean time in your life and so there's there's a shame around bleeding certainly not god's way of interpreting that or designed for that but that's how the world saw it at the time and that's how women were treated so imagine being a woman who was bleeding non-stop for 12 years she probably didn't have any friends she was probably outcasted she was probably in extreme despair and desperation. And it says she had spent all of her money on physicians and no one had helped her. She pushed through that crowd that was crushing Jesus. She touched the fringe of his outer robe, just the teensiest bit of material, and she got her miracle. And Jesus said, who touched me? And of course, his disciples were like, what do you mean? everyone's touching you. Are you seeing this? Like you're you're being crushed with people. Everyone's touching you. And he says, no, someone did touch me because I was aware that power to heal had gone out of me. And when the woman knew that she couldn't escape notice, she came down trembling and fell down before him and and obviously said it was me. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That is what is so tremendous about this story is out of everyone who was touching him, they were touching him probably in a very different way than she did, eh? She had a miracle she needed. She had faith. She knew if I just touch the teensiest part of the clothes he's wearing, she had that level of faith. If I just touch just a hem of his garment, I will get my miracle. But think about all the other people who wanted access to him. You can't tell me they didn't all need certain things in their lives and certain miracles. The difference was faith. The difference was faith. All these other people are touching him, grabbing at him, trying to hug him. But only she gets the miracle. It was the posture of the heart. It was the absolute belief. And boy, did she get her miracle. And what would that have meant for a woman who had been outcasted from society for 12 years for no fault of her own? And then right shortly after this exchange between him and her happens, some people come to Jairus, the synagogue official whose daughter is very ill, and it says, your daughter is dead. Don't even bother to inconvenience the teacher with this further. There's nothing more that can be done. But Jesus heard this, and he said, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and trust, and she will be made well. That's their only task. Only believe and trust and she will be made well. They came to the house. It was Jesus, the mom, the dad, a couple of his disciples. He says, don't weep. 
you know, they're devastated. They're seeing her dead body. And he's like, don't weep. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. And they begin to laugh at him, laugh and mock him. And he took hold of her hand and he said, child, arise. And immediately she got up and he ordered that she be given something to eat. That was the first thing. He said, feed her. Mm. Her parents were greatly astonished and he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Powerful, powerful faith, faith, faith. Yeah. Anyway, what did you take away from these stories? These stories are profound. They're so, so good. What did you take away from them? What did you apply? We started in the parable of the sower. We moved the parable of the sower. We moved into the demoniac. Man, what would it have been like to be a man or a couple of men full of demons for God knows how long, tormented, terrifying, absolutely uncontrollable, and now you're clothed and in your right mind talking to everybody like a normal person? Can you imagine the transformation? Can you imagine? Mm. May it be so in our day, hey? There's so many people that need the same freedom. May it be so. May we, walk, may we walk in the faith and the power of God to bring that kind of freedom to people. Yeah. And then the woman with the issue of blood, eh? That's, that's a powerful one, eh? Just getting out there. I don't know why I keep saying eh. My mind. But just that's always hit me of someone who had that kind of faith. That Jesus could feel that someone touched him differently than all these people clawing and grabbing and pushing and shoving at him. Someone touched him differently. And that goes again, over and over and over, you see the intimacy of Jesus, the intimacy of Jesus that no matter what was going around, he could stop for the one. Think about this demonic possessed man. He could stop for the one. There's thousands, millions of people perhaps in need of him, but he stops for the one. He doesn't miss a beat. He's never out of touch with the individual surrounding him, but he looks through to your heart. He looks through to your heart. That's why not everybody was getting that miracle just by touching him, but she got it. He could feel the faith. He could feel the hope. And he never missed someone that was meant to be seen. What a good, good father. What a good God. Everybody wants a king like Jesus. Well, it's another long episode, guys. I fear that they are not going to be short. I fear that Luke is just going to keep us going in an intense way. I may have to make these, uh, I may have to split chapters up to make it short and just do half a chapter per episode. We'll see. I don't want to do that because it will take us forever to get through the book of Luke. And I'm very interested to potentially go through each of the four gospels to see how each story is told a bit differently and to see the stories that other gospels don't tell. Um, So I don't want to take a million years to get through the book of Luke, but at the same time, gosh, I just, I don't want to do them uh, an injustice by going too quickly. So I'm going to figure this out. I hope you're enjoying these episodes. I hope you're really taking something from them and it's expanding your view. And I hope ultimately your faith in God, rereading and relearning about the life and miracles of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. I will, of course, be back tomorrow for another one, and we will keep going on 365 days of podcasting. Thanks so much for listening, and bye-bye.